Amen. I think that uh, sometimes one of the most difficult and sometimes even frustrating times in a young person's life is when they're trying to figure out what they want to do for a living when they get older. You know, the pressure is really applied at a young age by uh, grandma and grandpa and Mimi and Papa or Papa and Nana, whatever you call or terms that you use to refer to those people who take your children, spoil them, fill them with sugar, then drop them off when they're bouncing off the walls, whatever you call them, um, when, they, when they come to your four-year-old child and go, so what do you want to be when you grow up, right? Child sits back and begins to think for a moment and th- says, well, you know, I, I, I really like chewing gum and you know, I really like hop, hopscotch, so anything in those areas would be great, you know. As though these children have any idea at four and five years old what it is that they ultimately want to be. But the pressure grows the older that they get. When they're in elementary school, no big deal, got a lot of time, your whole life is ahead of you. Middle school, well, maybe I need to begin thinking that. Mom said that it's time for me to start growing up. You get to high school, you're like, hey, still got four years left, I'm still good. It comes to senior year, and if you don't know what you're doing at that point, not only are you nervous, but also so your parents are nervous. Everybody begins to wonder, what did we do wrong? Where did we go astray? And let me, just, let me just calm everybody down just for a moment and just let you know, and I haven't even been here, but this is what I'm clinging to. I figure it just works its way out, is, is what I figure, is that uh, throughout humanity and all of human history, people have just ultimately figured it out. They may try a bunch of different things, but finally they'll settle into their niche and they'll know what it is that they want to do and what they need to be doing. But let me say this. That's only really part of it because we know once they kind of figure out what they're supposed to be doing, there's still a few more steps. There's still some certain skills that they need to learn or they need to acquire in order to be good at whatever it is they believe that they want to do. Now, I say that because I think the Christian life is both unlike and like that. It's unlike that in this is that I praise God that we as believers in Jesus Christ are not having to, you know, uh, rub our hands together and worry about what it is that we are supposed to be doing with our lives. That's very clear in the word of God. We exist to glorify God in all that we do. But specifically, we, we glorify God by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who are around us. That wherever we are, whatever occupation that you're in, whether that be a doctor or a nurse or a fireman or a school teacher, whatever it is, that's your mission field. And you begin to share the gospel and you're faithful in that sharing. And then you know what God does? Eventually, he drives faith into the heart of those that you're sharing that gospel with. And then it's your responsibility and my responsibility to show them what it looks like to live a life following after Jesus Christ. That's what we call making disciples. And so we don't have to worry about that. You don't have to wonder why in the world do I exist? But it's similar to that experience with that high schooler trying to figure out what they want in this is that even though they know why they're here, they still are in need of certain skills and abilities to actually be successful in what it is that God has called us to do. And that's what we find in this passage. We see Paul and the apostles, they understand their purpose, glorify God by making disciples of all nations. But they have two particular skills that we see in this text that allows them to be successful and what it is that God has called them to be and to do. So two particular skills that you and I need in reaching a lost world. First of all, we need clear discernment. We need clear discernment. Now, kind of catching up, I know some of you have not been with us in the study of the book of Acts, so let me kind of catch you up to speed. Uh, verse or Chapter 16 picks up immediately after we're 
chapter 15 lets off, and that is that Paul and, 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 and uh, Barnabas have split up. There's a disagreement that arose between them. Uh, it has to do with a young man by the name of John Mark. Paul does not want John Mark to come on a trip with them. Uh, Barnabas, who is his John Mark's cousin, wants him to come. Finally, this agreement is, disagreement is so great, they break and they completely go different ways. So Barnabas picks up John, or John Mark, and he ends up going to Cyprus. That's his hometown. But Paul picks up Silas, and he begins to go back and revisit all of the cities that he and Barnabas had visited on their first missionary journey, but now they're just basically visiting them in reverse. So they come to this city called, uh, called Lystra, and they enter into the city, and they meet a young man, a young disciple of Jesus by the name of Timothy. And apparently he came to faith during their first missionary journey to Lystra. And now the Bible says of him, it describes him this way. He was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers in, at Lystra and uh, in Iconium. So, so impressive was this young man, Timothy, that everybody who knew him respected him. And not only that, but Paul wanted him to be a part of his missionary team. But before he was going to take him, he demanded and commanded of him to do something that sounds completely unlike Paul, the Paul that we've been reading about for the last several months. He commands him to be circumcised before he goes on this mission trip. Now again, if you haven't been with us, let me give you some, some context here. Up to this point, there has been a group of false teachers by the name of Judaizers who have infiltrated the church and basically they've said this, Gentiles cannot be born again apart from being circumcised and following the law. Paul is angry at this. He believes that a person is saved by grace through faith alone, and it doesn't take anything else. And so he begins to fight tooth and nail. He, begins to, he writes a whole book, the book of Galatians, that is against this kind of false teaching. In fact, in chapter 15, there's even a council, the Council of Jerusalem, where the apostles and elders get together, and they discuss this very issue. And the outcome of that was they said, that's right. Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. All they have to do is repent and believe. And they write all this down on a sheet of paper. And now Paul and Silas, part of the reason why they're even in Lystra is to begin to share with all these Gentile churches what it is that they had, the conclusion that they had ultimately come to. So up to this point, he keeps saying, no circumcision is necessary. But now we get to this point and he says, for you, Timothy, circumcision is necessary. How in the world are we supposed to understand this? I think there's two specific things. First of all, Timothy wasn't a Gentile. He was a Jew. That was the specific teaching. That's why Luke gives us this information. He says he was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, and his father was a Greek. During this time, the rabbinical teaching was this, that if a Jew were to marry a non-Jew, a Gentile, that that was an unlawful marriage. But any children that would, be, that would come from that particular family, what they would ultimately say was the lineage of those children was determined by the mother, not the father. So if that mother was Jewish, guess what the children would be? They would be what? Jewish. If it was Gentile, the children would be Gentile. So here we find out that Timothy had a Jewish mom, Gentile father, so it makes him Jewish. And so he's not telling a Gentile that he needs to be circumcised. He's calling to this Jewish man and says, you must be circumcised. But there's a second thing that's going on. Here he's not talking about salvation. He's not saying 
this young man, young man, you need to be circumcised in order for you to be born again. He knew that he was already born again. He was a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. The reason he wants him circumcised is not for salvation, but is for the salvation of those that he is going to share the gospel with. See, what we find when you read the text is that some people knew very clearly that he was Jewish, but his dad being a Gentile meant that he hadn't been circumcised as a child, and that would be a problem for the Jewish people that they would be trying to reach. Paul always made a habit, even though he was an apostle sent by God to be able to reach the Gentile world, he always went where first? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. So they would constantly be going into these synagogues. Well, if Timothy was going to go with him, It would be unlawful for him to enter the synagogue, for him being Jewish and not circumcised. Therefore, it would have caused a barrier for him in sharing the gospel. So he's commanding him to be circumcised, not because he says, this will make you saved. He's saying, this will break down all of the barriers and the stumbling blocks that would be caused if you are not circumcised. And so that's what he calls him to do. But what I want you to know is the incredible wisdom and discernment that Paul has that he knows when to make an issue of something and when not to make an issue of something. When to drive something hard and when to be able to overlook something. When something is important for the essence of salvation and when it's ultimately not, especially in the area of traditions. Now, we have the same thing that we need to have. We need to have the same discernment. Some of you know this last week, and I appreciate your prayers, that I had actually gone and preached for the, the local Baptist Association. If you don't know what that is, if you're not so Southern Baptist, but if you remember here, <laughs> surprise you are. And so um, if, if you're not Baptist, it's basically just a group of churches from the area, from Northeast Florida, South Georgia. There's probably about six, 60 of them, and I guess they couldn't find anybody to preach, so they asked me. And so I went to it and preached at it last Sunday night, and, and, and I wore something that you wouldn't have recognized me in. Do you know what that is? It was a jacket. It wasn't a full suit. Don't get, don't get excited, all right? It, it, was, it was a jacket. And I wore that jacket when I got up and I preached. Now, I got to tell you this, I hate jackets. I hate sports coats. I hate ties. I hate, I hate them all. It just drives me insane. I had to wear it in one of the first churches I was in, and it just cost a lot of money. I had to wear them, and it was just irritating to me, all right? That's my, that's my spiel, all right? And so you sit there and go, well, if you hate them so much, why did you wear them? Well, because I knew my audience, and I knew the people that were going to be there. And the audience, it, it, there was a lot of people that come from very traditional churches, and they're going to be sitting there, and, and they grew up that all their pastors wore jackets. They all wear suits. Nothing wrong with that at all. Wore ties. And so they came to recognize that the man who stands in the podium ought to have a jacket and tie. Now, if I showed up dressed like this, right, what would be their response? I would be preaching. Would they be listening? Not at all. They would be sitting there going, who let the homeless man in, and why is he preaching, Right? And so nothing would be, the whole time they're sitting there, I, I can't listen to a word that that guy's coming out of my mouth. Some of you are sitting there going, I'm thinking the same thing. I'm new here and I can't understand a word that's coming out of his mouth either. And it would be a stumbling block to them. So here's what I ultimately did. I just said, I need to throw on a jacket so that they could hear the word. I need to throw a jacket on so that they're not sitting there going, why isn't he wearing a jacket? This is completely inappropriate. It wasn't the time for me to be able to get, now, do I think that you have to wear a suit to be able to be, to preach the word of God? No. Do I think that it's needed for them to be able to do it? No, not necessarily. 
Do I think it's good sometimes? Yes, sometimes I think it's absolutely wise. Why? Because some people are expecting that, and if you want them to hear the word of God, you need to be able to do it. So it was easier for me to become uncomfortable and do something that I'm not necessarily for, all for the gospel's sake. It's very similar to what's going on with Paul and Timothy. And it's what, what Timothy or Paul is calling him to do. He sits there and says, it's not necessary. It's not something that you normally have to do. But if you want to be effective in reaching those who are ultimately around you, you need to take on a part of that tradition yourself to be able to reach those who you're ultimately trying to reach. This is similar to young pastors. When they come up here, God has blessed us at different times that pastors will come. They'll find Mercy Hill as a place of healing, and then they'll go out again. Or sometimes we have young pastors come, and they take their very first uh, church somewhere. And this is what I try to tell them all the time. You need to know which hills are hills worth dying on. And I said, when you go into these different churches, don't change stuff. Don't go in. I'm going to tell you something that you don't know, that pastors are just like you. I know that's hard for some of you to believe we're exactly like you because we do the same thing. When we go into churches, when we first go into churches, we got an idea of what a perfect church is like, how it should run, what kind of music it should have, what kind of programs it should have. And you know what we often do? Just like you do when you came in here this morning, some of you are like, well, I like that, I don't like that. That guy's weird. I don't know about him. I think this should change. Pastors do the same exact thing when they go in and they start leading a church. When they go in, they sit there and go, I don't like the music. I don't like the time that we're visiting. I don't like the, the, the clothes that people are, are wearing. We're going to change all of that. But if a pastor goes into a church and he begins to mess what is traditional inside of that church, he is burning all types of bridges because the people who are sitting there that he wants to preach and teach no longer listen to them because he is, whether he knows it or not, has hurt them because they're messing with traditions that are important to them. And the truth is he should have enough wisdom to sit there and go, these aren't bad traditions to have. It's okay to dress like that. It's okay to sing that type of music. There's a lot of good stuff involved in this, but he doesn't do it. Why? He ought not to do it. Why? Because he burns bridges. Now, you sit back and you think to yourself just for a moment, what does this have to do with me? It has everything to do with you. Here and you we guys know that she's in India. When she is in India, she's dressed differently today than when she's there. When she goes and she begins to share the gospel with Indian women, she makes sure that her head is covered. She makes sure that when she goes into a home, she, she takes off her shoes. Why does she do that? I mean, she could sit there and go, look, I'm a woman. And I got the right to be able to dress whatever way I want to. And I don't have to cover my head. You guys are living in the Stone Age. Why doesn't she do that? It's just not that important. I'll go ahead and take on some of this tradition to make sure that they're hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you and I want to call you for for some sensitivity and some discernment when you're sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oftentimes when you have information, you're beginning to learn, you're growing in Christ. Maybe Maybe you were in a Catholic background and maybe you came to the point and go, man, I realize that it's not about grace and works. It's just about grace, 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 grace. I'm not saved through works. Well, you come out of that and you're rejoicing, but you ought not to go to a Catholic individual and be able to sit back and go, you guys are messed up. You guys are jacked up. You think that's going to save you? That's not going to save you. And I'm telling you, you want to be sensitive. You want to sit there and you want to notice and recognize what it is that they believe. And you want to honor that. You don't have to agree with it. As long as it's not something that is absolutely contradictory to the word of God and specifically salvation, you have to pick your battles. Now, if I had gotten up and I had preached before that group of people and the issue of the day was you can't be saved unless you wear a sports coat, Well, then it might be time to address the congregation on dress and sports coats, right? But it's not about that. 
And so the key is, is you and I, through this Christian life, have got to have great discernment of knowing what is absolutely necessary for salvation and what is not necessary for salvation. So that's the first part. Second thing that we need to have is we need to have full dependence. Full dependence. Now notice, if you will, in verse 6. The Bible says, And they went through the region of Perigia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Okay, I'm going to tell you something real quick. We could do this the easy way or we could do this the hard way. I can sit here and I could try to lay out and do my very best, which I won't do very well, of laying out where they went, how they went, let you know where all these places are, what routes they took, and it would be painful and difficult for me, but even more painful and difficult for you. Or I can just sum it up and tell you what's going on. How about for the second? B? All right, let's do that. Here's basically what's happening. They are traveling from the east to the west. And here, somehow, someway, they've come together, and they're trying to figure out how can we reach this lost world for the gospel. God has commended us. He's called us out to go and take the word of God to the Gentiles. Where should we go? Well, all of a sudden, they must have come to the decision, we need to go to Asia. So they begin to travel down to the south, and they begin to visit people there, and they make the, they, they make the journey. They want to share the gospel. The Bible says, but they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not sure exactly what that means. We don't know if somebody got ill. We don't know if the authorities told them that they weren't allowed to be able to enter in. We don't know if there was a, a, a word that, that God had given to one of those on the missions team saying, hey, we ought not to be going this direction. All they know is the door was closed for them in Asia. So they had to determine where are they going to go. Now, I'm just telling you, this is what I, I figure. I think they sit back and go, hey, we can't go this direction. Where are we going to go? Somebody mentions, we need to go to Bithynia. That would be a great place to be able to go. Oh, that's just straight north. All right, well, let's go straight north. They begin to go straight north. They're spending time, energy, money. Days after days are going by. They finally get to Bithynia or almost into Bithynia. And all of a sudden, the Bible says this, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go. Again, don't know why. They just couldn't make it. Now, after this, where do they go? Well, the only place they can go. They've come from the east. They try to go south. God doesn't allow them there. The door is closed. Try to go north. Can't go there. The only thing left is to go west. So they go west to a place called Troas. And as they're in Troas, they're probably still seeking God, trying to pray, God, where do you want us to go? All these doors are closed. What should we do? They go to bed. That night, Paul has a dream. And in the midst of that dream, the Bible tells us here, it says, it tells us, so pass, verse 8, so passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in that night, and a man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, or urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, we don't know who this man is. Commentators have tried to make a big deal about it. Some would say it was possibly Luke who actually wrote this book because it's where he was from. Others say that it was Alexander the Great. I don't know how in the world they get that from the text. All we know is that they, God used this vision for them to know exactly where it was where they were supposed to go. After door closed, door closed, door closed, there was finally a door open, and they chose to be able to take it. Now, that's the story. That's not too difficult to understand, is it? Is it? All right, we got it. All right, is it? But the question is, then, what do you do with that? Because you know as well as I do, we sit there and go, okay, that's great, on to the next lesson. What do we do with that? Let me tell you, first of all, what I do not believe it's saying. I do not believe that it's encouraging us to sit down and seek visions from God to determine what he wants us to do. Or for you and I to be able to sit back and go, you know, we really don't know what to do. This whole following the word of God thing is not helping. God, we just need a great big vision right? And the reason for that is this, is because if you notice even in the book of Acts where we see these visions, they're never seeking them. 
They never seek them. Paul wasn't up on the top of the roof of, of Simon the Tanner's house and, and sitting there and going, man, I could really use a vision right now. No, he's scrambling eggs. He's scrambling eggs. He's hungry. He forgot to eat that morning. All of a sudden, bam, bam vision comes. Here's Paul. They've been working. They're tired. They're worn out. He's like, guys, I don't know which way to go. I don't know exactly what to do. I'm just going to go to bed and think on it. And in the middle of it, God gives him a vision. So let me just say this. God can use a vision. Certainly he can use a vision. I think it's much, le- much less likely for us who have the full counsel of the word of God. But I do know that God is using visions all over the world, in the Muslim world, and the Hindu world, for God to use visions to draw people to faith in Jesus Christ. I think that he can certainly do that. But I don't think the point is for you and I to be able to seek visions. So what's the point? I think one of the points, obviously the overarching point, is the dependence on the Holy Spirit. But I think this is something else. I think it's, it's telling us that our plans are not always God's plans. What you and I sit down and plan and think through, pray through, work through, discuss, come to decisions on, sometimes they're just not exactly what it is that God wants us to do. They may be good plans. We can do good things. We can plan things. We can even try things. And in and of themselves, they can all be good. That's what's happening here. These men weren't trying to do something for themselves. They weren't trying to do something contrary to the word of God. God had called them specifically to go into all nations and preach the word of God. What were they trying to do? That very thing. But when they got to the places that they thought were best to be able to go, God closed the door and they weren't able to do what it is that they had set out to be able to do. There was nothing inherently wrong within doing it, but God had other plans. Let me give you kind of an example of this. We have been working, and uh, and, in a while back, we had the opportunity of helping and planting a church there. And these are wonderful Christian people. I love them so, so much. And after a while, I was excited for the church to kind of get up and going because I felt like once they got up and going, I could really help and our church could really help them to disciple them and to train their ministers and to train their people. So I looked really forward to the discipleship aspect of it. By that particular point, though, things had changed. And what had changed is there was another church from the U.S. that had actually gone over there and they were just doing what God had called them to do. And there was a wonderful godly pastor who had planted this church. He was a church planner. And he came and he began to meet with them and they really gravitated to each other. And what ended up happening was they decided to go with him and their church to be the church that was discipling them through different types of material and to be able to grow. Well, I gotta tell you, I mean, I'm just, I'm trying to be transparent with you. I was, I was taken back. I was hurt. I love these people. I wasn't really hurt by them. I was just sad that I wasn't going to get the opportunity to do. And here's what I kept thinking in my mind. God, I don't understand this. You've, you've called us to plant churches. You've called us to make disciples. There's nothing wrong with this. And no matter how hard I try in this, it doesn't seem like it's working out It just wasn't working. And so this other church began to disciple them and began to grow them. And he did an excellent job and still is doing it. But here's here's what I found out. I didn't know why God was doing until after the fact. See, here's what I want you to understand. Is that you and I, we know that there is an ultimate sovereign plan for us. We know that, right? And there are specific plans that God has for you and I. But I'm going to let you know this right now. You and I almost never know what those specific plans are before they happen. It's almost after the fact that we understand of what God was doing. Say, so here's what I found. Was that pastor who was there, God ended up calling him to actually go Elders take within his- the church. And here's what I began to understand. This man who moved his whole family over here can be way more of a help than I can over in the United States. Even if I take five or six short-term trips over here. And all of a sudden I begin to understand I had a plan 
But God had a greater plan. And I'm telling you right now, there are some times that you're trying in your effort and you're making efforts and you're going places and you're doing things. I'm thinking about my brother that just got, one of my brothers that just got back from, from Cuba. And he has been searching. Over the years that I've known him, he's like, he's going to India and he's going to these different places and he's trying to get plugged in and, and, and he's trying to find the place and he's like, well, that was good, but I don't think that's it and that was good, it's that's good. And now I haven't sat down and talked with him, but everything that he tells me is, wow, this is an amazing door that God has opened in Cuba for him and for that ministry that God is working there. And so this is what God does. He closes doors, but the closing of the door is not to say that God is done with you, it's to say that he has something greater for you, a different plan. Sometimes our plan plans are not God's plans. Here's another thing that I would point out. Not only that, but I'd also say that our failures do not make us failures. I think that's important to understand. We often place such an incredible amount of pressure on ourselves not to fail, don't we? I know this as an elder and a pastor here at Mercy Hill. I really, every decision that we make as a group of elders I think on, pray on, fast on, and I know that our other elders do. And I gotta tell you, I still lose a lot of sleep about these decisions when we're trying to move a lot of sleep. You say, well, that's just not trusting God. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I'm working on it. But oftentimes, this is my problem. I say, well, what if we do this? What if we buy this property next, next to it? And it just doesn't work out for us to be able to move forward and be able to build something. What if I ask the people to be able to spend that kind of money and it doesn't work out? What if we plan a church? What if we send a missionary over and we spend all of this money and it doesn't work out? And it worries me there because there's this, there's this heightened sensitivity that we have to be successful in everything we're going to be. You know what this teaches me? Is that sometimes we're perfectly faithful but it doesn't turn out the way we want to and we're, not necessarily, and we're not necessarily successful. But we're successful in the fact that we are ultimately faithful. And so here's what I think is interesting with all of this. One of the things that I know, think about it for a minute for these missionaries. They prayed, they planned, and they all agreed to go to Asia. They put time, energy, and money into it, but, but, but not one gospel presentation. What would we call that? A failure. They prayed, planned, and agreed to go to Bithynia. They put time, energy, and money into it, but not one gospel presentation was made in Bithynia, or it was, was made. What do we call that? We call it a failure. But what I think is interesting is, and you can't push this too far from silence of a text, but nowhere in this does it say that God disciplined them, that he was upset with them, that they were failed for them, that they had failed, that he was, that he was going to discipline them because they didn't fall. That's what we often do. Have you ever sat down and made a decision with your spouse and sat there and things didn't go the way that you thought they were going to go and you sat back and go, I don't know what happened. We prayed about this. We saw it, God, it seemed to be such a good thing and it just didn't ultimately work out. What does that mean? Even though it doesn't work out, it doesn't mean that you're a failure. What it means is that this is oftentimes the process that God uses for you and I to get where he ultimately wants us to be. God is concerned about where we will ultimately be and what he will ultimately do in us. But you know what's also important is the process and how faithful we are getting there. God is not worried about what our batting average is. What he's worried about is if you and I are gonna seek him, depend on him, and love him in everything that we ultimately do. He takes care of the scorecard. Let me say one more thing. Our failures are never wasted. Our failures are never wasted. Now, I want you to understand something. I don't mean, and I'm not trying to promote you and I sinning. To sit back and go, well, it's okay, I'm gonna sin, and it's not a failure, God's gonna use it in my life. That's not what I talk about. I'm talking about real efforts that you and I make. We, we have to fully trust that the Holy Spirit can and will get us to where we want to go when we need to get there. That's exactly what happens here. 
They're discerning in what God wants them to do. They're discerning on what's right and what's wrong. They're also dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And you know what happens in the rest of chapter 16? They end up going to Macedonia. They end up going to Philippi. And there's a lady by the name of Lydia that comes to faith in Christ. There's another young lady that is demon-possessed, and God uses them to be able to cast the demon out of them. There's a a Philippian jailer who doesn't know Christ. He comes to faith in Christ. Their whole family is ultimately born again. And why is all this? That's ultimately at the end. But that doesn't mean that the failures along the way were worthless. Think about it for a moment. If you were in that group of those missionaries, what would you be doing that whole time? Be praying together, seeking God together, calling out together, being frustrated together you would have an opportunity to demonstrate love for one another, care for one another. You'd have all kinds of opportunities to sit back and go, we don't know what to do. Let's just trust God. You'd be talking things out. And what I'm saying to you, do you hear what I'm saying? What I'm saying is that is a part of the process in God's will, not just to get you somewhere, but along the way that God is doing things in you, even in the midst of the failures, that he's using this to cause you to love one another and to have even greater faith in our God. That's the process which is ultimately coming in here. Think of these missionaries for a second. What do you think the result was of all the planning together, seeking God together, failures together? It's a greater love for each other and a greater faith in God. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. What you and I have to learn to be able to do is to be discerning in everything that comes our way. What is essential, what is not essential? If you get caught up in what is not essential, it inhibits you and I of sharing the gospel with other people. Number two, we have to be sensitive and dependent upon the Holy Spirit that he can get us where we need to go. And in the midst of those failures and trying great things for God doesn't mean that we're failures in and of itself. It means that God is continuing to work for us and that he has something else for us. Here's how I know that failures don't make you a failure and how God can take failures and do great things at it. There was no greater failure, at least in the eyes of the world and even Jesus' disciples, when Jesus Christ was arrested and put on the cross. When he was put on the cross and he was put to death, the whole world believed that this movement was over. Everybody believed that Jesus Christ had failed. Even the disciples were scared to death believing that this dream was ultimately over. But God took something that appeared to everybody else as a failure and used it for the greatest good because it was through the death, burial, and resurrection, the end of Jesus Christ, that God used to do what? To save you, to save me. He used the death of his son so that anybody who would repent and believe and place their faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ would ultimately be born again, amen? And I don't know if that's where you are or not, but that is worth celebrating. Let's pray this morning. Jesus, we come to you. We thank you, Lord, for the time that we have. God, I thank you so much, Lord, for your word. I pray for those that are seeking you, are guiding you, are seeking your will. God, you will get us to where you want us to be. But let us seek you. Let us follow after you. Let us do everything we can, Lord, to be faithful along this journey. And there may be different types of failures here and there and all over the place. But God, as we're continuing to pursue you, we know that we'll trust you. We'll be obedient even in the midst of the failures. And we know you'll get us to where we need to be. Lord, even today, God, you have brought people here. I don't know what their story is. But you've brought people here this morning to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of them have been running from you, running from you. They know they need to repent and believe, but they haven't. They know they need to have eternal life. They know they need the forgiveness of sins. 
And God, their journey has led them here. And I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that in the midst of all of their failures, you would let them know that you love them, you care for them, and you forgive them. If they'd only call out to you, in your precious name we pray, amen. Let's stand together. Stand together. I'll be down here. And if you want to come, you want to pray, whatever it is, now is the time to be able to respond to the preaching of God's word this morning.